Patriots, this is Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. Bringing you insight from outside the mainstream, I am your host, Ryan. Today we cover decoupling from China, how Toyota is not giving in to the climate virtue signaling, and how Kintanji Brown Jackson does not know anything about the Constitution. Next, on Living with Liberty. have a little podcast sandwich today. I have a couple of funny topics here with some serious stuff we'll throw in between. Now, the first funny thing is an update on my dishwasher. I'm sure you've all been waiting for this. So the tech came out last week, basically said the brain of my dishwasher is the same as Joe Biden's. It doesn't work. And I'll need a replacement. I'm just waiting for a return authorization at this point. Um, I'm probably going to have to call this company pretty soon here. He came, tech came out, I think it was like last Wednesday. It's now um, a Monday. So uh, we're going to have to give them a little phone call here, see if they've got that for me yet, and put, put a little pressure on them, I think. I've not been real happy with the customer service I've received thus far. So they're really in danger of me. Uh, pulling this thing out and getting a whole new dishwasher. But anyway, that's that, that's the update on uh, dishwasher gate here. So I have a little chuckle at my expense if you want at that one. All right, on to the serious stuff here. Can the U.S. decouple its economy from China? Well, depending on who you ask, the answers will range from yes, it's possible to uh, no, we can't do it. There are many risks in doing so. I'm not going to pretend that there aren't. Uh, because there are, we've become so intertwined with China at this point as far as production capabilities and uh, consumption and, and, you know, the economies are, are, are just, uh, just, you know, really to the point where, I don't want to say symbiotic, but, uh, but you know, pretty close. I mean, uh, they get a lot of agricultural exports from us. We get obviously a lot of just goods from them, right? Whether it be clothing, chips, whatever. So there's many risks in decoupling our economy from China's. Uh, But I think there's a lot of benefits in doing so as well. What many may not realize is that we are already in process of decoupling our economy from China. And we have been since the Trump administration. And it's actually one of the few Trump policies, the Biden administration hasn't tried to eliminate, amazingly enough. You would think that would have been the first thing with old Joe's ties to to China and being in hock to China up to his ears, uh, that he would have tried to um, more normalize, I guess. Is that the right word? I don't know. But we can call it that, normalize uh, relations with China to to what they were pre-Trump, I guess. The Biden regime hasn't eliminated the tariffs, and to their credit, we want to be fair here. When uh, We want to do what's best for the country. If they're going to do something that I think is best for the country, we'll have to call it out, whether I agree with them on their total ideology or not. But to their credit, the Biden regime has pushed for more investment in producing things here in America, especially critical industries like semiconductors. 
The supply chain struggles coming out of the pandemic and China's continued zero COVID policy are also drivers in pushing the U.S. And honestly, not only the U.S., I'll link a bunch of articles in a description box uh, uh, about the, this idea of decoupling some for, some against. Um, and some of them are noting that there are other countries that are moving towards a decoupling from China. Now, as you know, I've I've made mention of it here before. I'm a big proponent of decoupling from China. Not, I'm not saying eliminate trade with China. Uh, not what I'm saying at all. Uh, trade is good for the economy all over. Um, but we have to decouple our economy from being so dependent and, and reliant on China. Uh, I've covered it previously in a, a other shows that, you know, just the way we should uh, look about pulling out of China, what we should be doing to put uh, put pressure on China to make sure that they're doing things ethically when it comes to forced labor, things like that. And that we should be looking at how do we diversify our, our, our uh, manufacturing portfolio. Uh, and we should be doing this to the, to the point, not only one for national security, but two, I feel like China's taken advantage of us over the years. They've played, uh, you know, us as the stupid Americans. Um, they've become the world's manufacturer. And we need to do things that shifts the balance of trade and the balance of power out and make things more equal. So a decoupling, yes. A total canceling of trade, no. Now, the work Trump did, and I'm now being continued by the Biden regime, actually should have been started 10, 15, maybe even 20 years ago. Decoupling can be done. It will be painful in the short term. I've made no bones about that. It is going to be a painful process. It could be, uh, depending how it goes, it could be not that painful. It could be very painful. But there's going to be some some pain. There always is when there's when there's a change, right? Uh, but to me, it's always been the short-term pain has been better than, uh, has, has always been worth the long-term gain from doing this. So how did China get to where they are in a relatively short amount of time, comparatively speaking? If you remember, they really didn't open up trade. I think it was Nixon that, that really got China opened up to the world. Before that, they were, they were like North Korea. They were a bigger North Korea. They were closed off to the world, basically. People were, were ultra poor. Uh, certainly was a third world country. Today, you know, that's the other piece of this. Today, I don't think you could classify China as a third world country, yet they still get most uh, favored nation status at the WTO, which that needs a change as well. That's another part of the problem here in a different topic altogether. But they got here in a short amount of time. How did they do that? Well, they did it in part by requiring the transfer of knowledge and technology as a condition for entering their market. And because American companies, particularly the publicly traded ones, have short-term focus on profits and and they just saw how the Chinese market would boost said profits and, and shareholder return because that's what it's all about. American companies dopely said, okay, we'll do that. We'll give you our technology and knowledge and we'll just enter your market and you can make the stuff for us. And they did that without regard to thinking about what the impacts were down the road. Because now we don't manufacture a whole lot of new technology stuff here. We might, uh, we might uh, through the R&D process, 
conceive the technology here. We might do little test runs of the technology here, new technology, new processes, whatever. But eventually it gets shipped over to China in order to make that new piece of whatever, new, let's say, a new smartphone, for example, new highly technological smartphone nobody saw before in, in the history of the world. In order to make that, you have to transfer that knowledge and technology to China. Well, what happens now, those companies that you subcontract to make this phone uh, have that technology, and, 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 and now China's gaining in their, their technology, uh, technological prowess here. That's how they've gotten to this point in such a short order. They've made that a requirement. They've opened up and said, hey, we've got cheap labor. Here's some tax breaks, whatever, cheap land. Build your plants here. We'll make all this stuff for you. And, oh, by the way, never mind. We'll just, um, you know, while we're at it, steal the technology and and uh, utilize it for our own state-owned industries, whatever else, too. So that's how they got here. That's how they got where they are in such a short amount of time. Uh, 50, was it, 2022, 50 years or so? Um, where you think about a lot of other countries and how they've come about. Some have come about in short order, sure, but others are still not as technologically advanced and and they've been around, you know, as long. You know, the, the short-term focus on profits and, and these publicly traded companies and, and the focus, the ever-increasing, uh, uh, increasing might not be the right word, but the, the ever-present focus on cutting costs and, and kind of the fallacy and uh, some of this is is labor being a major cost, right? Uh, there, there's things, especially now, you can do to mitigate the cost of labor. It's uh, some products. It's not a huge uh, a huge uh, input into the price of the overall product. A lot of times, especially your consumables, it's the materials are the biggest Im- uh, cost input. Um, so, so this this idea, and, and that's what we hear sometimes. It's well, the labor's cheaper. Well, yeah, but are we shipping? What are we shipping over there? I mean, I, I could dizzy you with the with charts on the supply chain of these things uh, that that are made in China, and uh, you know come back here for sale, but the parts come from here and go to China to be made, and it, it's it gets messy. I'm not going to bore you with all that. If you're interested, I'll, I can find you a chart of of how many times things circle the globe sometimes just to be made into one little widget. So anyway. The Chinese could send industrial spies over here, right? They could do that. They could have done that. They probably did that. They do it today, I'm sure, right? They could buy the products and reverse engineer them to figure out how they work and then try to emulate that. And I'm sure they did some of that, too. A lot of countries do that. A lot of businesses do that. But that takes years to do. It takes years to uh, get intel- enough intelligence to be useful to send back if you have industrial spies. It takes years to reverse engineer something, try and figure out how it works, especially when you're not a, techni- a technologically advanced uh, society. It takes a really long time then. It doesn't matter how many people you send over here to school and then go back to China. It, it still takes a long time to reverse engineer something and figure out how what the tolerances were, how things were made, etc., they could have done that. They probably did that. Takes years. The the quickest way, though, the quickest way to get their hands on the technology was to make it a, a requirement of trans of uh, of opening the market to make that transfer of technology a condition for entry into the Chinese market to sell goods, services, whatever. And American companies and the American government too. They're not. Uh, they're not. 
uh, off the hook here by any means, happily obliged. They mortgaged our future as an industrial superpower for a few short-term gains and profit. Countries that don't make anything are not rich countries. Take a look around. Which countries are the ones that have the wealth? The ones that manufacture stuff. Now, do we still manufacture stuff here in the U.S.? Yes. Do we manufacture as much stuff here in the U.S. as we did uh, 50 years ago, 60 years ago? No. Have we gotten poorer because of it? Yes. The services have, have the people especially have gotten poorer because manufacturing jobs pay higher than the service industry jobs. We've been fed this lie service industry was going to take over. People are going to make more money in services. That hasn't been the case. How do you make money? How do you get wealthy? You make stuff. But we've sent our ability to make stuff overseas. And as a result, our people are poorer now because of it. Wages have stagnated, haven't grown much at all outside of some inflationary thing uh, pressures right that that's that's all because our government our uh our uh, corporations sent the ability to make stuff overseas to China for short term gains and profit now we're coming for full circle though because as the pandemic revealed we have too much of our critical supply uh tied up in China too much of our critical supply chains are tied up in China. Think about the medical supplies. What was it? The big rush on masks and gowns and all kinds of stuff. Where were they made? China. We didn't have any of that capability here in the United States. Military parts. I brought that one up a couple shows ago. How we need to get more uh, production here, particularly of chips, because they go into critical military components. Where are they made now? China. China tomorrow, if they wanted to, could shut our military down, could shut down our capability to continue to make missiles, uh, planes, whatever, because so many of those chips are made overseas. Now, as I mentioned before, there are many that are not on board with decoupling, and one such entity is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. They had this to say. Uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce warns it will disrupt existing supply chains, ex exacerbate delays in production, and force companies and consumers to pay more, not least because relocating product can't happen overnight. Yeah, that is a fact. If not done correctly, if, it were, if we were just to say, hey, tomorrow we're done with China, we're decoupling our economies. If it's done like we pulled out of Afghanistan, then yeah, there will be major disruptions to the supply chain. There will be shortages. There will be extra costs. You'll pay more. Yes, I acknowledge that. But the Chamber of Commerce is making an assumption here that we are just going to pull the plug tomorrow. And that's what will cause issues. If you don't plan this, yeah, it, you're going to have issues. Given what we've seen from the incompetent Biden regime, <laughs> that could be a possibility. I mean, they could just say, oh, Joe might wake up tomorrow and say, ah, I want to prove that I'm not in hock to China. Uh, let's just pull our pull a plug. No more operating in China for any American companies until X, Y, and Z happen. It could happen, right? And it's good tomorrow. We've seen this guy. However, because of the ramifications to the economy, I don't think that's a likely scenario, even with with uh, Dementia Joe in the White House. This would be something that is well-planned with businesses taking the lead on it, as they have already. And it's going to, it would happen and have to happen over many years. These things just don't, it doesn't materialize overnight. The, the Chamber of Commerce's statement there doesn't hold any weight at all if you decouple from China. If you do it right, there'll still be some pain, sure, because nothing goes perfectly, but 
it, it won't be the doomsday scenario they were kind of outlining there. And it's, I, I think too, this, this idea of decoupling is likely to be something that is further incentivized in order to make it attractive for businesses to nearshore or reshore operations. So we have the, the free trade agreement among Canada, United States, and Mexico. So there'll be some incentives to, okay, bring, uh, bring production back to the United States. I think we saw that under, under uh, Trump when he had that holiday on repatriating profits, uh, the tax holiday, right? You could see Canada and Mexico. Hey, your market's really like the United States, Canada, Mexico, North America. Why don't you put relocate your plant here? We've got X, Y, and Z incentive for you. So I think you see that. You start to see these these supply chains get closer to the market, which is the most efficient place and probably the 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 most cost effective place to to uh, to have production is near the market for the most part. There's some things where it, you know it makes sense, little plastic widgets or whatever that don't cost much, don't weigh much, uh, don't cost much to ship because they don't weigh much, don't take up a lot of space, whatever. So it's you're going to see it incentivize. The cost of labor has been going up in China for years. As the country has gotten wealthier, the people have demanded more uh, in terms of wages, right? The living standard has gone up. So what does that mean? That means the cost of labor has gone up, and that's been the biggest excuse for why companies say we have to produce in China. It's the labor. The labor cost is different. Well, it's probably on par with what you see in Mexico now. Canada and the United States, yeah, the labor costs here are a little more expensive still. They're going to be. We're more advanced economies. But Mexico's, Mexico's on par with China at this point. And the other thing here, you know, I look as right now, as labor costs go up in China, it's the difference in labor. The difference in labor costs is not enough to offset the cost of shipping from China at this point. Nor is it worth the extra stock that companies hold to account for the long lead time on shipments from Asia, from China. It's uh, to give you an idea. I worked in this in the industry uh, where we got a lot of componentry from China. You are trying to forecast 90 days out what you need because the lead time was three months. It took three months from order to the shipment of parts at my door so I could assemble them into a widget. You have to hold extra safety stock and hold extra inventory to account for that. That costs money. Inventory is money. You can either spend your money on R&D investments in your people, or you can spend it on extra inventory because you got a supply chain that is 90 days out. Those are the choices businesses make. And now the, the, the labor costs are not offsetting the, that difference. It's not offsetting it. It's not making it worth holding that extra inventory anymore. So to me, the, the pay more excuse um, from the, the Department of Chamber of Commerce here. It doesn't hold any weight for me either because we have massive inflation issues now. <laughs> We're already paying more. We're already being disrupted. Our supply chains are still to this day being disrupted by China's policy to shut down based on the first hint of a sniffle out of somebody. They're, they're still shutting down cities today because someone gets a sniffle for COVID. We already have higher costs. The costs have been going up. We already have the inflation. We have the, the disruption in supply. So the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's uh, argument here of, of against decoupling is garbage. It's trash. It doesn't hold any weight. These things are already happening. There's a process that companies would follow to kind of outline this. 
there's a process that would be followed to move production to to mitigate any risk or a lot of the risk in supply disruptions. It would look something like this. First, and obviously, they'd have to build a new plant. Well, you could take over an old plant if one worked and abandon one, but more than likely you build a new one because old plants and new plants, there's a lot of differences in their design and setup. So you build a new plant. So while this new plant's being built, that company would be working on increasing their inventory to account for a transition. So they're buffering their inventories to make sure that there's no disruption that, uh, or minimal disruption. You're, it's a forecast. They're doing it on a forecast. You're not going to get it perfect. But they're, 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 there's a plan in place to account for, hey, we're going to have this new plant up and running, uh, so we got to have more inventory just to be on the safe side. Now, after the new plant's finished, they would run it in tandem with the current production facility over in China, let's say, to ensure that the new plant is producing the same quality product in the same quantities before finally cutting over to it the new plant here stateside full-time. So you have that secondary check. Is the, is the new plant running? Is it operating as it should? There's a ramp-up time. Plants just don't come up and start producing the, the same amount immediately there's a time a learning curve and everything else and working bugs out of the equipment that that takes a plant a little while to ramp up to make sure or to make product uh at a, at you know the levels needed really at, at the at levels expected now if done right not perfectly mind you but right there would be minimal disruption to the supply chain and you would see probably minimal supply shortages. I wouldn't say there there would be none. Nothing's ever perfect, right? But but you would you wouldn't see it like the Chamber of Commerce wants you to believe, oh, there'd be supply chain disruption and and shortages and costs would go up. No. If this is done right, the analysis is done right, that stuff is a risk, yes, but it, it's it's a low risk in my opinion. Now, the other piece here to making this work is getting other countries on board because some of this is designed to put pressure on China. So you got to put some some uh, get these other companies on board to say, hey, you can move up your uh, timelines or start, you know, encouraging your comp- uh, your companies to kind of reshore their their production. Let's get it out of China. Let's diversify our supply chains, etc. So you got to get their companies to move production out of China or shift their buying habits to countries that are actually not in China's sphere of influence at all. So the other factor here is, is that uh, we've, we've got to get these, these other countries to, to kind of speed up their timeline as well, because if you have one country doing it, it's not going to have the effect, right? Part of the effect here is yes, it's to diversify your supply chains, get closer to home, Make sure that you have critical supply within your borders that's controllable. The other part is to actually put some pressure on China to make sure uh, to or or to make them respect human rights. Uh, That's the other piece of my issue with this whole thing is, is we we put the thumb on the Cubas and the Venezuelas of the world, but we give China a free pass. We just give them strongly worded letters. It doesn't work. It's, It's just stupid, stupid thinking. So. Uh, you, we get the other countries on board because you have to. You have to start, you know, moving everybody else out too, or get them to move out. You can't, you know, necessarily force them, but get these other countries moving out. Now, there's one other factor here to this on on uh, 
you know, the decoupling and, and what would happen, right? And the other factor here is that China actually needs us more than we need them. There was a time where America was a self-sufficient country. We had, and we still can be. We have everything, just about everything we need here. And if not, give us a few years. We'll uh, put some money behind some research and development, and we'll figure it out. If we don't have uh, rare earth metals, fine. Let's figure out a, a, a substitute, right? We can do it. That's what we've done. We're America. We've always done that. We have the resources to get uh, back on that track if we so choose to be in terms of being self-sufficient. Again, I'm not advocating no trade at all and isolating, right? That's not the right way to go about this. But in key spots being self-sufficient, we need to do that for our own national security. We have ways to mitigate costs. There's a lot of automation, and especially in new plants or even existing plants. They're putting in lots of automation that takes away a lot of the repetitive uh, or repetitive jobs that people used to do, uh, and that's actually hard on the body. So that's been a good thing, and those people get deployed to to do something else, right? I, we've all heard about the the labor shortage. Our birth rate is is far below is not well, far below may, maybe is the wrong word, but it's below you know the replacement of the workforce. Um, so you know we have ways to mitigate costs. Where we have ways to train people that they're more technical to work on the automation. Uh, so, you know, we have those those ways to, to do that, to make it palatable here from a labor standpoint to make product. And then China knows without access to our market, they will fall, fall behind economically again. There won't be that transfer of, of uh, knowledge of technology anymore. They'll have to reverse engineer things. They'll have to spe- send industrial spies and they'll be back to taking the long road on, on uh you know, trying to keep up with the with the United States economically. Now, I'll link an article in the description box about how China essentially cannot build the same self self sufficiency. Say that five times fast that America once had. In short, it boils down to government incompetence. Well, we've seen that from our government getting involved in business, but China's has been just as bad, if not worse. China. The, the CCP has invested huge amounts of money for years into the pursuit of self-sufficiency. And those investments have not paid off. Now, I believe it's one of the reasons the Chinese are branching out and buying influence through investments in the rest of the world. There, there um, was a Belt and Road Initiative. They're buying influence in other countries. They're giving other countries loans for infrastructure that puts those countries in debt to China and having to bend to the will of China. So they're they're going about this other ways because they, they don't have a path to self-sufficiency. The investments they've made have flopped, period. Decoupling from China can happen. It already is. It won't be easy, and yes, it could be painful. I'm not running away from that. I'm not saying it's not going to be. But for us to be a secure nation, for us to, to enjoy, um, you know, America as we knew it, I think, Someday we get back there. The tides have been turning, but we need to we need to be a secure country. We we need to have control over our supply chains for critical uh, parts for critical infrastructure in order to be a secure nation overall. In order for that to happen, we need to decouple from China. Period. It's an achievable goal. We just have to have the desire to continue what's already started. Uh, we have to have the desire to continue doing that. Subscriptions are the big way, one of the big ways podcasts get discovered. So if you could, please do me a favor. 
whatever platform you are listening on, or if you're viewing Rumble, YouTube, if you're viewing on one of those, please hit the subscribe button. It will help get the word out to you by giving you an alert whenever a new Living with Liberty is published, and the subscriptions help us get into the recommendations so others can find the show. Okay, I really hope American automakers are ready to have Toyota kicking their ass yet again. Now, Toyota is the largest automaker in the world. Um, I, I think American companies made up, have made up some ground over the years uh, recently here, but Toyota is still the big dog on the block. And honestly, this next story, Toyota will probably be kicking their ass again. While American automakers are boldly virtue signaling their new vehicle offerings will be fully gasoline-free by 2035, Toyota is taking a much more measured approach by continuing to have gas-powered cars as part of their offering. This will ensure, as I look at this whole thing, it'll ensure that they continue to be profitable. It'll ensure that they'll continue to be the biggest automaker. It'll con- ensure that we, the people, have affordable cars that people can buy, right? We've seen the prices on all the EVs. They're 10, minimum 10 grand, five grand. Let, let's say five. Let's say they're 5,000 more for the low-end model, right? That's still 5,000 more than a, you know, a gas-powered vehicle when you buy on payments. I mean, that adds to your payment. Uh, plain and simple. So Toyota will be able to sell affordable cars to people while, you know, the American automakers, they'll be left again wondering why people aren't buying their cars. What did we do wrong? Blah, blah, blah. And they might be fabulous cars, but there, if you go fully, fully EV, what's that leave for other people who can't afford those, right? So it's not to say, you know, to Toyota, yeah, they're going to keep gasoline cars in there. Uh, in their uh, lineup, but it's not going to—it's not to say they're not going to introduce more electric vehicles as part of their offering either, because they have plans to do that as well, and they want to offer a full range of options from hybrid to hydrogen, and and yes, gasoline powered, and yes, EV, uh, more EV models, more electric vehicles. Toyota, though, they're just not into the virtue signaling required to avoid the spotlight of the cultic, uh, climate cultists. They're, they're, they're doing what's right for their business. And they're doing actually what probably every automaker should be signaling that they'll be doing. Yes, we'll increase EVs. We'll get more on that in a minute. I think EVs are a, a fad. But we're, we'll, we're going to increase that. But we're, we're going to have gasoline models. We're going to have the hybrids. We're going to have the full range still. Give people a choice, right? Because that's what it's about. What what do we have available? What infrastructure is available? Let's give people a choice. If you want an electric car, fine, drive an electric car, whatever. You want a gas-powered car? Fine, drive a gas-powered car. I don't care. That's how it should be. You have something available for the people to, to uh, that, that meets people's needs budgetarily. Now, Akio Toyota, grandson of the, uh, of the founder of Toyota, had this to say about uh, battery vehicles. It says this, Battery electric vehicles are just going to take longer than the media would like us to believe. Yeah, the adoption of this is going to take longer. He's absolutely correct. We're not talking about a new smartphone here where the adoption was pretty quick. We had cell phones. We had the flip phones. We, you know, remember the old Nokia flip phones, whatever. Once once the iPhone came out, that was you know the the upgrade from the BlackBerry. So we these things have been around 
you know, and the adoption of those has has been pretty quick. People see it, and uh, the infrastructure was already there with cell towers and everything else. It, it was pretty quick adoption to go from a BlackBerry to a smartphone. So with cars, though, it's different. We're talking about 120 years or so, something like that, of ingrained technology that works well, right? It's gasoline-powered, diesel-powered engines work well. And the infrastructure's already set up for those. We don't have to put in new stuff. There's gas stations on every corner, everywhere. Uh, We have wide distribution of that. We have pipelines for petroleum, et cetera, refineries. The infrastructure's set up. How are you going to move away uh, to something where there's no infrastructure set up? People aren't going to adopt it that quickly because there's no infrastructure. If I'm driving down the road in my my EV, a straight EV, it's not gas-powered, you know, I have to really plan out my trip. And if you, you know, the, the faster you go in those EVs, the more your battery gets zapped. The more stuff you're running in, inside the, the car, the more your battery gets zapped. So you, your range is, who knows, right? It may say when you get in, I don't know, two, 300 miles, but depending how fast you go, it might be less than that. So I, I think it's, it's foolish to say, especially on the American automaker, uh, automaker's parts, to say we're just, going to, uh, we're, we're just going to be totally, you know, gas-free vehicles in our offering by 2035. It's foolish. We're at tw- October 2022 here. It's going to take longer than 13 years to get enough infrastructure in place to uh, accommodate a, a mass influx of electric vehicles. It just is. We should have started 10 years ago on this. You know, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I'll probably say it even again after today. But I think electric vehicles are the laser discs of our time. You know, remember the laser disc? It was basically a vinyl record-sized DVD. It died out pretty quick as people realized you could put a movie on something the size of a CD. We already had CDs. We just had to figure out how to put movies on them, and we did that, and you get DVDs, boom. What happens? So the giant laser disc gone. I think battery vehicles are, are in the same boat with that. Battery vehicles are useless. It might be a little strong, but they're not as good in the cold. It's proven that cold temperature saps battery life, as anybody that lives in a northern climate can tell you that you always know what kind of battery you have on that first cold day of winter when you go and try and start your car. It doesn't matter if it's a lithium battery, a lead-acid battery in a car. Cold destroys batteries. It saps the energy from them. And then you have batteries losing the ability to hold the charge the older they get. You you think about your cell phone and how it gets older. uh, And when it gets older, you pretty much have to keep it plugged in to keep it operating. So if you couple battery wear with the cold and, uh, you know, the battery vehicle owners in uh, the northern climates, they'll see severely restricted ranges on their vehicles the older it gets. And they'll have to basically keep it plugged in when it's not in use. So you unplug it when you leave your garage, you drive to work, plug it in at work. Oh, well, there's only like three plugs at work because we don't have the infrastructure or the grid structure, electricity grid structure to to plug in a bunch of vehicles. So we can only have like three of them here. Well, you might be SOL that day. 
<laughs> work from home, I guess. You have to have some sort of sign up on who gets the charging station that day of work, I guess. And then there's the battery packs. And those battery packs are expensive. They cost anywhere from $7,500, $10,000, maybe more. We don't have enough electricity in some areas today, looking at you, California, to keep people's lights on, let alone charge a bunch of cars. It's not a sustainable technology, in my opinion. And that's the buzzword du jour, right? Sustainability. So, And that's the whole point, right? We just hear, oh, sustainable, green, green is sustainable, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? Toyota's not buying into the whole green hype. They're not. They're not buying into the virtue signaling. And to prove this, Toyota was a pioneer in the hybrid technology. The Prius was the first gas electric hybrid car out there, right? But that's not good enough for the climate cultists anymore to have been a pioneer of the hybrid technology. Now, listen to this quote from Catherine Garcia. She's the director of the Sierra Club's Clean Transportation for All campaign. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Anyway, here's her quote. The fact is, a hybrid, tech, a hybrid today is not green technology. The Prius hybrid runs on a pollution-emitting combustion engine found in any gas-powered car. Uh, Catherine, EVs aren't green technology either. I can't, I, I can't deal with the stupidity of this anymore. No matter what, just because there's not emissions coming out of the tailpipe doesn't mean there weren't tons and tons of carbon emissions coming out of the supply chain to get you that Tesla or EV. I can't do. De- How can these people be this stupid still? It, lithium. It, let, let's look at this. Lithium is stripped mined from the earth using heavy machinery that's burning diesel or bunker fuel. And bunker fuel is like the scummy fuel that's left over. Uh, in the refining process, a lot of it gets burned in the ocean, uh, the cargo ships that you see uh, in the ports. So it, that's a really dirty fuel. The, the parts for these cars, they're, they're made in countries where coal is a primary source of power, China, India, etc., Southeast Asia. EVs are charged on our electrical grid where uh, coal and natural gas-fired power plants are a large source of the power. I'm guessing she forgot the mission statement of the Sierra Club. So I'll remind her here. It says this, To explore, enjoy, and protect the wild places of the earth, to practice and promote the responsible use of the earth's ecosystems and resources, to educate and enlist humanity to protect and restore the quality of the natural and human environment, and to use all lawful means to carry out these objectives. Now, some of these, I think they sound a bit contradictory to me. I agree, you have to have... Uh, responsible use of the Earth's resources and ecosystems. And I'm all for that. Don't get me wrong. Nobody wants to live in a crappy uh, sludge, toxic sludge-ridden place. Uh, we we have one Earth. I'm all for it. Yeah, let's do what's right by it. Let's protect it. But you have to have the balance, right? There has to be balance, and you have to do it as, to me, as, as um, kind of with the least impact to the environment as possible. And you have to balance that out. And as things get better, technology gets better, that happens. But you have Catherine Garcia here who's kind of talking about the EVs and how hybrids aren't green and EVs are and and not even giving a thought on to how that EV gets to her garage and how that all fits in context with the mission statement of the Sierra Club. So let's do a little comparison for Catherine here because I don't think she really understands how things how 
uh, these EVs get to market, how green energy, how green cars get to market. So lithium mines, they destroy and degrade the wild places of the earth. Well, that doesn't seem to leave them open for people to explore and enjoy them, does it? Uh, And then you can't ship lithium ore or even the refined lithium through a pipeline. So how does that get moved? We know pipelines. Pipelines are pretty emission-free, right? That seems like a good way to send stuff. But you can't send lithium ore or refined lithium through a pipeline. So how does it get from point A to point B? Well, that goes by trucks and rail cars and boats that burn diesel and bunker fuel. So that all kind of sounds like, you know, not really a way to protect the wild places of the earth for people to explore and enjoy them. It doesn't really sound like um, restoring the quality of the natural and human environment, does it? We're strip mining. Now, coal mines, yes, okay, I'll give you that one. But let's contrast that because we're talking about oil here. We're talking about cars. We're not talking about, um, uh, you know, coal-fired power plants here. We don't run our cars on coal, so... They run on uh, refined oil, so let's let's contrast that. What what uh, what can we tell um, Catherine Garcia here about uh, about oil? So let's look at uh, the impact oil has on the environment. So a well is drilled. When that well is drilled, it disturbs very little of the surroundings, especially when it's set up and kind of pumping oil, the natural gas, to the surface. You you see the oil, Derek's. You see the. Um, you know, the pumps out in the fields, especially when you go places like Texas, I think Oklahoma, places like that. You see those things cranking out there. They're part of the uh, part of the surroundings. They're pretty low profile. And when you compare them to, oh, I don't know, um, you know, wind turbine. So they don't really disturb the, the, uh, the surroundings that much. They're not killing birds or anything like that. Crude oil can be sent by pipeline, which, oh, pipelines are emission-free. Let's throw that one out there again, uh, directly to the refineries. So I can uh, pump oil from point A, and I can send it through a pipeline to point B with zero emissions. Uh, and, oh, pipelines, we can bury those under the ground, so mm, those aren't uh, degrading the environment either. Now, to be fair, because we're fair here, Oil spills can be catastrophic to the environment. We have to acknowledge that that's a risk of pumping oil and moving oil by pipeline and whatever else, you know, tank, truck, boat, whatever. It's it's a risk, but that's a rare occurrence. We don't hear of oil spills every day. We don't hear of pipelines spurting oil all over the place every day. We know how to clean them up. Not that we want to clean them up, but we know how to clean them up and at least restore the environment, right? Um, are there impacts longer term? Yes. After cleanup, yes. Not going to run from that either. But it's a rare occurrence. It's rare, happens few and far between, and things spring back up after an oil spill. And the other thing we have to we have to acknowledge is, yeah, that oil is moved by tank, truck, and train, so bur- diesel-burning entities here. But the fact that oil can be moved and is moved by pipeline, and a lot of it's moved by pipeline, cuts back on those precious carbon emissions that we are told will cause us all to be frogs in the boiling pot. Now, the reality of the green movement is that emissions are just being shifted from one place in the chain to another. That's it. You're just, and you're causing more. Quite honestly, you're causing more by having to produce all these other components for a, a an electric vehicle than if you would just, you know, pump the oil in 
send it through the pipeline and refine it and figure out how to how to you know do a better and how to make uh, cars emit less, whatever you want to do, right? The technology is there. It's evolving all the time. The climate alarmists, so they don't think about that. They don't think about the whole uh, causality of things. They don't. They only think about what's in front of their face today, what's the current thing of the day, and never how things came to be. How did that current thing come to be? They never think about the cause of that. They don't think about the cause of what it took to put the bo- uh, battery-powered vehicle in their garage. They don't think about that. So I look at it like this. Toyota's doing this right. They're doing it right by sticking to their guns and not buying into the virtue signaling, saying, well, we're going to have all electric vehicles by 2035. They're not doing that. And you know what that's going to mean? That means their standing as the largest automaker in the world is going to be enhanced. They're going to have probably more profits. They'll be more profitable than the American automakers by doing so. If you are listening to the audio-only show and your platform allows for reviews, please give us a five-star review. It helps others find the show. Whether you are listening to the audio version or viewing on Rumble or YouTube, hit that subscribe button, the thumbs up button, the Rumble button, hit them all. The more interactions we have, the more the show gets into the recommendations made by the algorithms and the more we are able to spread the truth. Okay, moving on. What is it that we are always told... Uh, let's see what was. Oh, yeah, that conservatives are the racist ones. We're the white supremacists. We're the racists. We're the misogynists, blah, blah, blah. And, and that the originalist judges on the Supreme Court are really just activists. So that's what we're told, I think. I think that's how it goes anyway. Someone better tell that to Kentanji Brown Jackson. She seems to have missed the memo, and she's really just blowing that theory out of the water that conservatives and originalists are are the ones that are the, the racists and the the white supremacists and whatever else they want to call us. Democrats, we know, they're the true racists. We've seen it. We, they've proven it time and time again. We're not going to rehash that here. Well, I guess we're going to kind of, because that's a story. We are going to kind of rehash it here, I guess. But let's put it as another uh, another piece of evidence in the in the file folder, the case folder of Democrats are the true racists. So I have a red state article here. I'll link it in the description box. It's titled this. Justice Kentanji Brown-Jackson's Twisted New Comments Justifying Race-Based Policies. It's by Nick Arama. Now, the piece outlines a case that is currently before the Supreme Court regarding an Alabama, gerima- Alabama gerrymandering case in which racial discrimination is being claimed in regards to voting policies. And because of that, it's obviously, well, in the mind of whoever filed this anyway, a violation of the Voting Rights Act. Now, the concerning part here, one of them, and that was a concern when Jackson was was confirmed to the Supreme Court, is that we had some Republicans that voted to confirm the radical Kentanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. That's a concern. Those we got to go back and look at who who are those Republicans that voted for that and get them out, because she's anything but an originalist. She's anything but. Uh, has anything but the Constitution in mind. We'll go into that in a little bit. She's uh, an activist through and through. She's a, I would dare say, a racist through and through. It's equally, like I said, and, and you know, so that's concern one that we had Republicans vote for. Concern two, equally concerning, is she does not have a handle on the Constitution. She does not have a handle on history. And it's evidence in the piece. So uh, we'll read this from the piece here. Now, Jackson 
said she didn't think the 14th Amendment guaranteeing equal protection meant that you couldn't take race into account, saying she didn't think it was meant to be race-neutral or race-blind. I don't think we can assume that just because race is taken into account that the, that that necessarily creates an equal protection problem, Jackson said. She said the framers themselves, remember that there, remember that phrase, the framers themselves adopted the equal protection clause in a race-conscious way. I don't think that the historical record establishes that the founders, remember this one too, the founders believed that race neutrality or race blindness was required, Kentanji uh, Brown-Jackson said. She goes on. That's the point of the act, to make sure that the other citizens, the black citizens, would have the same rights as the white citizens. All right, wow. I, just wow. T massive stupidity here. It, just dumb. And, and this, this, folks, this is a... Uh, uh, she was a, a lawyer, a judge at one point, went to law school. I mean, this is what's coming out of her mouth. And they, t they supposedly, I guess, still teach constitutional law. Obviously, she didn't go to that class. I don't know. So we're going to be stuck with this clown on the court for who knows how many years. I mean, that's, that's just a fact. And we're going to have to listen to more crap like this over decades how many decades? I don't know. Hopefully, one, you know, not too many, but man, just the, oh God, I don't even have words right now for this. There's so many problems here. Let's start with her apparent lack of historical knowledge. I told you to remember, remember the statement about the framers. Now the framers, the framers wrote the constitution. They were long gone by the time the 14th amendment came into being. So it's impossible for them to have adopted the Equal Protection Clause, let alone have adopted it in a race-conscious way. The framers of the Constitution were long gone by the time the 14th Amendment came around where the Equal Protection Clause is, is enacted. So, so she apparently didn't go to history class. She doesn't know the difference between framers and amenders. And I, The framers are, are the people that wrote the Constitution, Kentanji Brown-Jackson. They're, they're the ones that, that uh, set up the framework of our government, hence framers. They, they didn't have any, any input at all, I guarantee you, into the 14th Amendment. Here's a second piece of this that just blows her argument out of the water. Uh, secondly here, the 14th Amendment is absolutely race-blind. And one only needs to read the first words of the amendment to figure that out. The first words of that amendment go like this. All persons born or naturalized in the United States. What does it say here? It doesn't say all whites. It doesn't say all blacks. It doesn't say all Asians or all Latinos. It says all persons born or naturalized. Breaking that down for the simple one-track mind of Brown-Jackson, that means race doesn't matter. That's what that says here. It says all people, born or naturalized, have the rights to the 14th Amendment in the Constitution of the United States. And again, she blew it with the founders. Uh, she had a founders. I told you to remember that piece, too, there, the founders. We know that she blew that there. 
But just for the record, let's let's cover that last piece of the statement. Let let's let's put the evidence out there, right? I don't want to leave you hanging there. You probably know already, especially if you know your founding documents. You know what I'm probably getting at already. But just for the record, here we'll cover it. We'll put it out there. We're, we'll enter it into the record, into the document for the case file here. The founders did believe in race neutrality and blindness. This from the Declaration of Independence, which it seems Ms. Jackson has never read. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Jefferson did not say only whites were equal, Only didn't say only blacks or, or Latinos. No, no, it was all men. That includes women. Don't write in and say, you just said men are equal. What about women? No, it's all men are created equal, as in humans, people. Because I know we'll probably get some of that blowback, too. It's right there in the text. She just needs to go look at it. She needs to, um, I don't know, take a reading comprehension class? I don't know. It's right there in the founding documents, plain English, that the... Uh, the the uh, 14th Amendment has n- nothing to do. It's not, there, there's no question of race in there. It's not saying one has this right and one doesn't. It's saying all people are uh, guaranteed this, everybody. And it's Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. Right there in the text, she needs to go back and look at it. All right, so let's complete our sandwich today. Nobody F's with a Biden. No, really, listen to old Joe himself. He'll tell you. I hate to break it to you, Joe. Everyone F's with a Biden. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, we've seen plenty of, uh, <laughs> plenty of, uh, um, Paid, uh, <laughs> paid actors, if you will, effing with Hunter. Uh, we've got Putin, who has on several occasions effed with a Biden, his latest being his little excursion into Ukraine. China, yeah, I mean, she's just, he laughs at Biden. North Korea, they just said, oh, yeah, Biden's not going to do anything. Let's just fire this missile over Japan. And then we got the latest one. We've got OPEC, the oil cartel, who Biden went to, Beggar hat in hand to ask them to pump more oil said, "Uh, you know what, actually, we think we're going to cut production. Yeah, that seems like a good idea. We're going to cut our production. And then, oh, yeah, you know what, we're just going to double that cut. Let's double the cut in our our production. That's, yeah, yeah, we're going to do that. (laughs) The world is literally flipping the double bird at Biden at every turn. Everybody Fs with it with a Biden. This guy is just hilarious sometimes. Everyone Fs with a Biden because they know he won't do anything. Okay, before I go today, I want to tell you about something I'm excited about. I will be doing a regular spot on Rucksack Radio with Tom on Tuesdays. Tom and I are dubbing it Laughs and Liberty. We'll be giving our take on world events and intertwining our humor into those takes. I think him and I have very similar kind of sarcastic takes on things, sarcastic senses of humor. So I think it'll be a good match. I'm excited about this. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So tune in at 7 p.m. Central for the live stream on Riverside, uh, Riverside FM, I believe it is, and uh, also on YouTube. 
And if you can't make the live show, catch the recording on YouTube later on. We both look forward to having you all join us. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for tuning in. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find my uh, links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living With Liberty Outfitters. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show, should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on Parlor. My handle is at livingwithliberty. You can also email me. The address is ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.